Amen. Please be seated. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. The text is also there printed on the sermon outline in your bulletin. Colossians is all about the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And in particular, chapter 3, we have been studying how we are dead to ourselves. We are made alive to God through Christ. Uh, the picture of Lazarus coming back from the dead, still wearing that old stinking clothes, but he himself had been born again. He'd been regenerated. And then the process Colossians takes us through of putting to death or putting off those things like immorality, uh, anger, malice, wrath, all these things that we are to put off, but then put on Christ, put on compassion, love, kindness. These things now show forth our new identity. Well, before we could go take on the world, brothers and sisters, we have to apply this at home, in our family relationships, in our work relationships, which make up the majority of our lives that we live. Sometimes we look so far to the big picture and forget that there is a particular place God has called us to demonstrate our new identity. It starts with the home, and it works itself out into the marketplace. Hear God's word, Colossians 3, 18 through verse 1 of chapter 4. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as is as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for your word. We thank you for its clarity. We thank you for its relevance. Lord, I pray that you would give us eyes to see the timelessness of these truths. Lord, help us to be followers of your standards and not of an aimless, foggy society. Lord, I pray that your people would be used to set the pace. I pray that we would be faithful in our most basic relationships at home and at work to show our new identity, that we have been regenerated. We have been born again. We have been resurrected. I pray that this would show forth and be ground zero of revival and reformation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We can certainly talk all the talk we want but it's in the relative privacy of our homes and our workplaces where all of it really shows itself to be true or not. I mean, what my family knows about me and thinks about me is really the truth about who I am in Christ. If it's true at all, in the workplace where we spend so much of our time, people there know. I mean, if you would ask them right now who you are, what would they describe you as? This is so basic, yet it's so profound, and it's often overlooked in our modern times. It's, it's really the means, I believe, at a basic level, 
of applying the scripture that we teach and preach and study so that there would be a revival and a reformation in our land. It's by living out in the most basic spheres of our lives, our family and our workplace, the things that God has taught us and called us to and given us the ability to follow as a result of being born again, as a result of having the Holy Spirit actively, supernaturally working in our lives. Very simply, since we are now dead to self and alive to Christ, our relationships should reflect a renewed purpose, and that purpose is the honor and glory of God. Not self-advancement, the honor and glory of God, which, by the way, will bless you as a person. Uh, Also, in conjunction with this passage that we're looking at this morning, I want to remind you that Ephesians was written very similarly to Colossians. They're called twin epistles. Paul writes similar instructions to both churches. Ephesians, though, has almost the identical order of exhortations in it with more development about them. So when we cover the Colossians passage, I might refer back to the Ephesians passage. You get the full picture of what is being commanded here. First of all, you will recognize that he addresses all these relationships that are so basic to us. Wives towards husbands, husbands towards wives, parents towards children, children towards parents, slaves towards masters, or or employers to employees, as it were, as it translates today. So here, how this translates for you, where you are, and what role you are to play. Now before I do that, remember the very important words of Ephesians 5, 22 through 25. Just listen to them and how they parallel where we are studying today. Ephesians 5, 22, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's a very important guidance as we seek to understand the particulars of these verses. As first, Paul addresses the marriage relationship, wives towards husbands, in the same order that he does in Ephesians. Wives towards husbands in verse 18 of Colossians 3. Look there with me. It says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Now, this comes against the backdrop that God has provided an economy in our marriages. That is, he has taken two equals and given one a leadership role and one a complementary role, and that when both pursue these roles, both grow towards Christ-likeness. That's by divine design, that you will be most fulfilled living out the very role God has given you in your pursuit of Christ-likeness. And so this is why he gives these, this order, not to make one superior to the other, or better to the other, or uh, make it unequal, but rather that as one flesh, one serves to support the other as both move towards Christ's likeness and bring great glory to God. That's the motivating factor we learn from the Ephesians passage. We learn from the way God created man and woman. And that is, if it's lived out, the chief way I would suggest to you that God actually reforms society by this being lived out in its correct balance. Looking first at wives submitting to husbands, what does it mean to submit? Well, it comes literally from a compound word that means to put oneself under. It is a voluntary submission. It is not an admission of of inequality, but rather it is following God's order by putting oneself in submission like Christ in the church and our submission to Christ. And you have also, as its wider meaning, to, uh, to voluntarily Allow for the leadership of the other. And note that the word doesn't mean consider yourself less than or think of 
him as superior. Rather, he's entreating the wife as part of her new identity in Christ to put herself up under the authority of the husband. God calls wives to be submissive to their husband's leadership responsibility. And I emphasize responsibility that he has given. It's helping him with this responsibility. That's part of submission. When a wife exhibits a submissive spirit towards her husband, she's honoring God and bringing glory to him despite the quality of decisions the leader makes. She is bringing honor to God by following his rule in this way. To submit to one's husband is to do what is in line with God's divine design for the marriage relationship and to so bring glory to Christ. Now let's specifically explore for just a moment. What does submission to your husband look like in practical terms? It certainly involves at least this. Ultimately, when disagreement arises, that there's a submission to the decision the leader decides to take. But pr in practical terms, honestly, how would this look? The way I've seen it work out in, our own in my own marriage is this. If you're wise, gentlemen, and hopefully you've been wise, you've married someone that is probably far smarter than you as I have. Wisdom would call for you to listen and involve and include and deliberate together on all decisions that are there to be made. Only in cases where both have addressed and considered and deliberated, where as the husband I think that God is calling us to do this and my wife might not totally agree, I may lead us in this direction, her role is to submit to that decision and go along with me and not beat me up if I make the wrong decision after. That's important. That's submission. That's what it looks like. How often, though, does that really happen when you're doing the things that I mentioned? Deliberating together, considering one another's opinion, considering one another's position. You, very rarely does it come to that point. That is one way submission can look, and we oftentimes think of it, and define all of submission as being, well, i got to do what he says. Well, submission is far more than that when you take into account all the Bible says about the, the relationship between the husband and the wife. We are told in another passage to respect husbands. We're told also that the wife is the help meet of the husband, the complement of the husband. That's the nature of being made out of the rib of Adam. So there's a complementary relationship, rightfully, a wife has with her husband. That's by divine design. Now, in light of that, submission or placing oneself under means far more than just simply giving over when there's a disagreement. It means much more than that. I would say it means this as well. Submission means personally encouraging your husband concerning his role as the leader. Some men are not active leaders as they should be. A wife can actually show a submissive spirit by encouraging him, not nagging him, but encouraging him to lead in his role. In fact, I will submit to you, gentlemen and ladies, that the greatest tool of sanctification in the life of a husband is his wife. And as she submits in this loving way by moving him towards his leadership position by putting him in a position to make such decisions, she will actually advance her own spiritual nourishment and maturity as she does this and performs this in a submissive way. Also, though, submission in this total way of looking at it means to promote your husband's role as the leader of the family in the eyes of your children. Very important that there's a united front and it's understood that dad is the leader of the household in promoting him in this way. It's not a matter if he's more spiritual is more spiritually mature than you. That's not what the text says. It says to promote this order in the home, which will have the effect of promoting his spiritual maturity over time. Submission also means following your husband, allowing him to fail without beating him up for it. 
I simply mean it does no good after a decision is made to remind him what a bad decision he made on behalf of the family that does nothing but discourage and embitter. Instead, even in failure, I speak from experience, it's so encouraging to have your wife still support you when you know you just made a dumb choice. I could think of about the first four cars we bought when we first got married. And my wife was so good. She understood that I was driven by horsepower more than practicality. And I had one car that had a, oh, it was a good car. But anyways, I had this car we bought right after we got married. Didn't have a lot of money. I used it to buy this car because I couldn't pass it up. It was just too good of a car. I mean, it was a 71 Monte Carlo with a 454 in it. And the, the problem was, is the engine was so big, when the Kansas cold came upon it, I could never get it started. It was out parked outside the apartment. And my poor wife, I know she could hear the motor, uh, uh, and she, if, as soon as I get back to the apartment, she'd already have her clothes on ready to drive me to work. She never beat me up once for one of the most foolish purchases I ever made. But that's important. I'm not saying let it go on ad nauseum, okay? I'm just saying that it's important not to beat your husband up when he makes choices that are not always the wisest. Furthermore, and probably most importantly, submission means bringing honor to him publicly, and that is respecting him in public, not speaking ill of him in front of others. This goes both ways, obviously, but here is one chief way in where we put ourselves up under our husbands in that sense, promoting him. It also means to be modest and temperate yourself in public and with others. This honors him, submits to him when you honor him in that way, by being faithful to him in your marriage. That's the way in which you are show yourself to be submissive to him. Well, I, I actually uh, loved one interchange that I got to witness when we were interviewing Brian Huff for our, our position, the youth pastor. Uh, unlike most jobs, when you uh, interview a pastor, usually you have both husband and wife there. And that's just the nature of the position. It's a shepherding role. And so the wife's going to be included in this. And I remember uh, he had gone through a series of group interviews with various groups in the church and with me personally and Nathan and and he had gotten a lot of questions. It's a long weekend. And I remember we came around this table, and a bunch of parents were there. Maybe some of you were there. And I remember Brian was explaining how we would do this and how we do that, and parents were asking all sorts of hypothetical questions. And at one point, Laura, who had been standing by his side faithfully, said, you know, Brian does that very well. That's something he does well. And it wasn't just uh, an empty statement. It was she'd seen him do it, and she wanted us to know he can do this. I thought that was a beautiful picture of a well-timed, support of her husband and his his strength she was letting us know something she knew about him that was valuable to us and it was genuine it was true this is part of the bigger picture of submission but we move on as we consider all the different relationships we have there's also the relationship of husbands towards wives verse 19 husbands love your wives and do not be harsh with them this parallels exactly ephesians 5 25 husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. There we have a clear picture of what this love means. The word love is literally agape, the highest form of love in the Greek language, but it means specifically, based on its parallel to Ephesians 5, a sacrificial love, one that lays yourself down for your wife. Now, you can see how this balance works. If you are constantly laying your life down and your rights for your wife, her propensity to submit to you will be much greater. And by submitting to the husband, his propensity to sacrifice for his wife will be much greater. Do you see the balance? This is what is intended. The problem is when we get off balance. 
And that's where the abuses happen. This is where dishonor comes, when honor could be what happens towards God's name as we have this balance, as the husband consistently and constantly lays his life down for his wife. It's radically different, by the way, as most, much of this passage is, uh, from the Greek culture of the first century. In the Greek culture of the first century that Colossae was a part of, in the greater Greco-Roman culture, basically had women and wives as thought of as property. Uh, they didn't even have the status of, of an indentured servant or a slave. In many cases, they didn't even eat meals together. So for Paul to come along, despite what modern egalitarian says is chauvinism, for Paul to come along and say, this is our new identity in Christ, that there's an equality and there's an order in the equality in moving together, one loves and one submits, and this relationship together brings honor to God. This is totally revolutionary in this day. Now, it's become totally revolutionary in our day in the reverse. Egalitarianism has won no one anything except for more hardship for women. That's what it's earned. It's never been tougher to be a woman than the day that's post, quote-unquote, women's live. It's taken them out of their divine design, and it, it, it has exposed them to so much abuse, so much abuse, that we now have a revolutionary message once again to speak of the marriage relationship in this way. What does it mean to love our wives, gentlemen? Well, I'm learning that it means more than just the big things. It has to do with the little things, too. Little things, kind things, on a regular basis. It means when you tell her that you love her, you do so more than once a week, figuring that, that just, you know, I told her last week, that, doesn't that cover? And we're just wired differently where there's a, a regular maintenance that has to occur on a daily basis with our wives that shows that we love and sacrifice ourselves for them. It means adjusting our schedules to consider her schedule. It has to do with maybe putting away stuff that you normally would leave out just so she doesn't have to do it. It has to do with complying to what she thinks is the best order for the home that she keeps on a regular basis. And honoring that and telling her by your actions that you think it's valuable the way she is keeping the home, watching, watching the household, all the things she does on a regular basis. She often doesn't, in fact, in my case, I've never heard her ask for me to thank her for it. What I can do is not only thank her for, for it, but act differently. Just do things in a small way, but also in a big way. I think about issues of, of long-term ways we can love our wives. I think promoting her health physically and spiritually, allowing for her to work on those things and encouraging her in those things is a way we love her long-term. It's true of our own health, brothers. It really dawned on me that my trying to be more healthy physically is good for her and my family. It's true spiritually, too, the time I spend in leadership. These are ways in which I love her by, uh, in, in, a, in a large macro sense. I think the finances are very important. It's, if your wife is better at keeping the books, that's fine. But gentlemen, we are still supposed to see over this aspect and make sure that we are providing in a way that allows for her growth and her security. And I mean in biblical terms, not necessarily worldly terms. I even think in terms of what would happen if we were gone. How would she be able to take care of herself? I think these are ways in which we love our wives by doing things to provide for them long-term if we're not in the picture, if we're gone, if God takes us. These are all ways in which we can actively love our wives, but none is greater than being faithful to her in our marriages by keeping our minds pure, by holding one another as brothers accountable to being pure to our wives and to the Lord. This is how we can love her in the greatest way. Husbands, love your wives. Look at the second portion. Do not be harsh with them. 
Literally, it means do not be embittered against them. And this means being harsh or sharp or speaking with friction against them. It really means literally taking out your frustrations on her. And I want you to be honest. Think about who gets the brunt of your temper or your anger. You spend all day in a, maybe in a workplace that's difficult. There's conflict. There's, there's disputes. There's pressure. And there's all these things happening. And you go to the home, to the place, and even though it doesn't make logical sense sitting here all calm, you go home to the place where the person who most loves you, most promotes you, is there keeping home, taking care of your children, and then we blow up at them. And we're harsh towards them because of what's happening somewhere else. That harshness will offset any acts of love that you're trying to display towards her. We are not to be harsh with her physically. There is never an occasion, ever occasion to raise a hand against your wife, gentlemen, never. There is never an occasion to hurt her emotionally by the way we act or speak, and this is the easiest thing for us to do. We could just say a little word that just twists her enough, just keeps her down kind of thing. This is being harsh with her, and this is against what God calls us to be in our new identity. I would just say, because time is limited, uh, if you're new in marriage or you're in, uh, you want to learn more about this, we have an off, uh, awfully excellent opportunity in Sunday school starting on the 11th to have a class taught called Each for the Other. What a good picture, and Each for the Other. Uh, it's a book written by Brian Chappell, who's preaching next week. Uh, it's taught by Dick and Norma Shannon, who have a few years' experience. They've been married for a half a century. They got married when they were 12. That's why they look so young. <laughs> but this would be a great class to go to to learn more from an experienced couple and from a book that's, that's solid on this important aspect of our husband-wife relationship, wife and husband. The relationships continue. As you know, verse 20, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Obey your parents in everything, young people, means everything. If my parents tell me to sin, should I sin? I hear that every once in a while. Listen, your parents won't tell you to sin, not on purpose. They just won't. That, that, that's a straw man. They just don't do it on purpose. Even the most pagan of people generally don't say, son, let's go steal something today. That's just, that's put up sometimes. I did it when I was a teenager, kids. You know, the idea, well, I'll think of something. What did they tell me? Listen, they just don't. I didn't have the experience growing up. You won't generally either. Not on purpose. So everything means everything. And when you do it, whether your parents have the right choice in everything or not, you will be pleasing the Lord by doing it. That's why you do it. It's granted. Your parents will make mistakes. We make them. And you will when you're a parent too. But if you obey, you will please the Lord. And is that not ultimately your heart's desire? To please God. I want you to think, young children, for you, what does this mean? I think it means how you talk to your parents. Young, young children who are, can hear me, and you nudge them, parents, right now's the time that you, you get them roused for this portion. When your parents tell you something, how you respond to them, how you talk back to them is very important. Also, your parents will have particular rules for you to follow because they love you and care for you. They want you to have a thankful spirit by saying thank you. They want you to do certain chores so they can train you to have responsibilities. They want you to treat your brothers and your sisters with kindness. They want you to do what you're told the first time you're told to do it. Not the second, not the third. That's not obedience then. In doing so, you please the Lord. And to the teenagers and young adults, how you talk to your parents is still important. But in particular, parents, let me just tell you, it's a struggle to be a parent of you at this age because we don't want to hold you back. We want you to flourish, but at the same time, we want to protect you from things that we may have fallen into or we know lurk. And you've just got to, at that point, trust that that's the best interest your parents have for you. It could have to do with the people you hang out with. 
listen to them and obey them on this. It could have to do with particular rules about the car, standards for your grades, rules about music you might have, television, movies, iPods, phones, rules for courtship or dating that your parents have for you, what you wear, your hair, being at church. These are things that parents want for you in certain ways, and they may look different among families, but young people, if you obey your parents in these things, it will please the Lord. And soon enough, you'll be in a place where you'll make your own decisions on these without mom or dad. And if it's a good situation, you'll find yourself going back to mom and dad every once in a while and asking for advice. Children towards parents. And you notice the parallel passage tells us something else, referring back to the commandment to honor your father and your mother. In Ephesians 6, it says that you may live long in the land, a direct quote from the Exodus passage, meaning it just makes good common sense that if you follow what your parents say, you will generally live a longer life. You just will. They're not going to tell you anything to get you killed. What they tell you is the mindset of longevity. They want you to live long in the land and prosper. That's your parents' desire for you. So obedience is key to this, and it pleases the Lord. But this speaks to us parents as well, not just to children. Verse 21 Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. It addresses fathers in particular because fathers are ultimately the leaders of the home. And discipline that happens should ultimately come through from the father and may be carried out in a major way by mom. But fathers ultimately are responsible for what happens. It's not all right just to say, well, my wife's better at it. She's responsible. No, she's not before God. You are. And together as a team, you can come up with ways in which to disciple your children. Do not provoke your children. Provoke means don't exasperate them. Don't irritate them. Don't excite them in a negative fashion. One commentator says, do not fret and harass your children. Another commentator says, do not overcorrect your children. Another commentator says, the twig is to be bent with caution, not broken in the efforts of a rude and hasty zeal. Ephesians 6 in the parallel passage says, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. In, a fee, in the uh, Colossians passage, they might become discouraged, which means they'll lose heart. They lose energy to pursue a particular course. They go listless and sullen in their life. How might we provoke our children? That's my ready question when I read a passage like this. Well, there are several ways. I'll just highlight a few. One could be too much discipline, too many unbiblical rules, no flexibility at all, no grace ever setting unrealistic goals, showing favoritism, criticizing consistently, these all discourage. And remember that children on a children-by-children -children basis are not identical. They're not machines, and if the book doesn't say Holy Bible on it, you don't apply it to every kid the same way. It doesn't work that way. It just doesn't. And so too much discipline or overemphasizing or pressuring discipline, giving the wrong discipline, can often cost great discouragement. Each child different. You know, I learned this, uh, and I still got a long way to go, but I remember when our three kids were born, the first one was born with a certain personality, second one has a certain personality, totally different. Third one, I thought, well, of course, I got these two figured out. There's only really two models, right? And so whichever one it, that child turns out like, I'll just apply. Well, guess what? There's more than two different kinds of people. I don't know how many there are. I just know they're totally different, and it's caused us great challenge to think of how to craft our discipleship of them differently. And it's different. I could say one thing to one, it greatly motivates them to godliness. I could say the same thing to the next one, and it crushes them. It's a lot like coaching in this sense, in the big picture. As I've coached teams, I've had teams with different personalities, totally different. What motivated one team just put down another. 
and it's this effort to kind of see what the balance of your team is, what motivates them to stretch them beyond what they think they can do, but not to the point of breaking. And it's constantly interactive. And you know what I would say to you probably ultimately over all these things? Is the application of your time spent with them. This tends to cover many mistakes we make if your children know that you're such a priority that you spend tons of your time with them. And so that's what a coach has to do, spend lots of hours with them to see and feel who their team is and then learn how to craft drills and craft practices that guide and direct them with their skills, their ability, discipline them where they need to be disciplined and they're not listening. But all my time spent with them makes them listen to me in a new way. And when I mess up in the process of coaching, they know I love them because of the time I spend with them. And I can go to them and confess sin to them by saying I was wrong in how I talked to you this way. And I, I need your forgiveness. And they'll give it to you without losing respect because they see how much you're devoted to them. This is all key to not provoking. The key way, I think, in this modern day that we provoke our children is simply by not spending discipleship time with them. Time with them covers a multitude of mistakes and discipline. And I think if I could say one thing to you not to provoke your children, it to be make sure you're spending a lot of time with your kids. Walking with them, discipling them, showing them visibly how important they are. Have you seen how all our relationships have been transformed because of our new identity. You've also seen that I should have cut this up into five different sermons. I saw that too halfway through last sermon. But let's continue as we see another basic relationship. Verses 22 through 25. Slaves towards masters. Or for us today, employees towards employers. Slaves, in verse 22, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. We're to obey, not just because the boss is looking, but because God is the boss and always sees. Now, an understanding of first century Greco-Roman culture is at least needed in a cursory way here as we understand it. Slavery, for most of us, when it comes to mind, we think of the Wilberforce movie out now, immediately you think of the African slave trade. Well, there's parallels. That form of slavery had some connection to this, but not completely. In fact, slavery is so buried in the Greco-Roman uh, Greco era that it's difficult to just quantify with one, uh, what, one description of what slavery was like. There's many ways a person could become a slave. Really, the most common way is that you would sell yourself into service of someone else. You would receive a certain compensation. You were not treated well, but teachers did this. Uh, also, doctors did this in these days. They sold themselves into service, bond service. There was indentured slavery where for a certain amount of time you had to work off uh, so, something that you would buy or some debt you owed. So the various forms, and you were that person's property for that time. There was also punishment. Uh, people were enslaved because they were punished. Or military defeats caused slavery in various sections. The apostles don't try to address an overall institution that involved 60 million people in this day, at this time. That's half the population. One out of every two people in the Greco-Roman world would consider themselves a slave to someone. In that sense, we're slaves of Christ. That's the picture. We're bondservants of Christ. But rather than attack that whole institution, what is said is an incredible, incredible revolution of that institution, if not a natural way to bring it into obsolescence. Look at verse 22 closely when it says, Slaves obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. As a believer who was subject to someone else, just as we are employees to others, it's not much different when you think about what we do in our days, not by way of eye service. That means that we are the hard, 
we are as hardworking as anybody could be for our respective employers. That means we don't just work hard when they know they're watching or monitoring us, but we are always working because ultimately we're thankful for that person who is our employer, but we also recognize our ultimate boss is God. Verse 23 tells us whatever you do, no matter what it is, whatever again means whatever, work heartily, not work hardly, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. So any job you do is worth giving your all for it, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Slaves don't get inheritances, but the Lord gives us an inheritance that's eternal and far greater than anything on earth we could have by way of pensions and 401ks. For you are serving the Lord Christ. And that's the bottom line, and it's revolutionary. You are serving the Lord Christ in whatever vocation God has called you to, whatever task he gives you. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. So if someone is abusing you in the, on the job, or for this time, the slave and the master, that master would be held accountable by God. Know that, and for your duty, work hard. Work hard at whatever it is you're given to do. We ought to, as Christians, work at, as hard, if not harder, than everybody else in any task we're given with full vigor and zeal for the Lord. He gives us an eternal significance. And brothers, in particular, if you have the opportunity to come to the men's retreat, you will see that a good friend of mine, uh, Patrick Kanak, is coming to speak on this area that is so, he's so passionate about, marketplace spirituality, the way our jobs help us to become more like Christ. You know, work is something that is not post-fall. Before the fall, work was ordained. It's right and beautiful and full balance. And it can be that way in the new heaven and the new earth. But for now, sin is entered, so it's difficult. But work itself is not wrong. And so we work at it with everything we've got. If you grasp this fact of verse 24, in your job or your vocation, you are serving Christ the Lord. Look also what it says, and this is revolutionary, what masters towards slaves, uh, their attitudes and demeanors and actions should be. Employers, to employees, masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you have a master in heaven. According to God's word, that's what it means to treat someone with justice and fairness. This means not abusing them, not sinning against them, not dehumanizing them. This totally revolutionizes any view that someone would have of slavery, to the point where it really makes it impossible to exist, doesn't it? How could you do it? How could you possibly be just and fair under certain systems of slavery that were existed in the Greco-Roman world and in more recent times. You couldn't. No way. Speaks, oh, it transcends how he focuses on what has happened in life and in the world. Every person is under authority. You also have a master in heaven, particularly for those of you who have the, have the opportunity to be managers over people or employers of other people, uh, business owners who employ people. You are to be generous in every way that God would be generous to you. Be generous in compensation. Be fair with promotions. Be just in all ways. C make sure that anyone that would look at you would be able to have an accurate picture of how generous God, the ultimate master, is. Consider the whole person when dealing with employees, their lives, uh, what it has to do with their, 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 their security outside of this position. Uh, all the things that go in uh, to considering a person's well-being totally, not just partially. How can you lead them to Christ as their superior in the workforce? How can you help them grow in Christ? And don't let the bottom line drive your decisions. God is sovereign over the bottom line. A boss that treated me well went far. I've had many bosses treat me very well, and I'm very blessed by this. And I remember one guy in particular, it was a part-time job in seminary. 
he would come on Saturdays and our, during our lunch break, and he would make us lunch, and he would serve us lunch, and he would work with us, and he always treated us just exactly like we were equals. And we were seminary students, so we had some amount of education. He never treated us like, you know, here I am cleaning toilets, which was fine for, for Jesus, no trouble whatsoever. But it was nice to have this guy come and just treat us with such uh, humility. And it just made me want to work hard for this guy, bottom line. I just wanted to do a good job for him. And that's true. It's true in any human relationship, and certainly it's true when you talk about employers with employees. Brothers and sisters, I've run through so many applications of the new identity that we have. We're dead to self, alive to Christ. Because of this, our relationships should reflect a renewed purpose. You have to be honest, brothers and sisters. I think most of us know that even a pagan understands some of these principles. But the pagan doesn't apply them for the same reason. The pagan applies them ultimately so they can manipulate relationships to better serve themselves. That's why we're nice to people, right? So they'll be nice back. That's why I do this or I do that, so that it will come back to me. It's really the focus of me having a good life, why I treat others a certain way. But in Christ, it's all different. It's now for the glory of God that we do these things. And the beauty of it is true joy and true fulfillment comes when we do it for eternal purposes that are God's glory intended. It, it's not that different the way people want to act, but it's altogether different as it relates to the driving motivation that makes us do what we do. And it allows us to be something no matter what others around us are doing. It transcends. Wives towards husbands, husbands towards wives, children towards parents, fathers towards children, employees towards employers, and employers towards employees. Our relationships should reflect our renewed purpose, the honor and glory of God. Let us pray. Lord, we are so thankful for the manifold ways in which you have given us uh, direction and clarity. I pray that we would not be guided by society, but be guided by your standards. I pray that your word would be so lived out in the lives of your children that the world would look and say and admit what they're doing is not working for them, and that they would see the church living in victory, and that the church's victory would transcend our homes and our church and into the wider culture, and that we would see a great generation raised up of reformers and transformers. And we pray this starting in our own homes and our own lives and in our workplaces. In Jesus' name, amen.